You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. We are to we are to demonstrate grace and truth to unbelievers. We are to seek uh, the Spirit and His leading. We are to remember point the unbeliever to Christ. That is the me- or that is the method of the gospel that we see from Christ. And then last week we discussed our hearts for the mission of the gospel and sharing the gospel, our, how our attitude ought to be in, in when we go and evangelize. Uh, of course, as we mentioned last week, we are to find satisfaction in the will and the work of God. We are to have an urgency for the harvest. And of course, remember that it is a privilege every time we utter the gospel to unbelievers. We are ambassadors of Christ and the ministry of reconciliation is a privilege so we've discussed the message, the method, the mission of the gospel, and I love how all of that worked out, by the way. I didn't plan all of that. It's definitely God himself. I have been trying to come at each sermon and each passage with a blank slate so that we can truly hear what God wants to teach us each week. And church, it must say something to our church family if what God has been highlighting each week each to our congregation is this theme of evangelism and discipleship and sharing the gospel. And I believe it's so relevant in this day and age that we live in. I, I mean, the gospel is re- relevant regardless of what century you live in, of course, but with everything happening in the world today, I can't help but feel that the, se- that, the, the sense that Christ is definitely on his way and that we as a church and individually as believers, should not be found idly standing by as unbelievers are dying and going to hell. As hopelessness and depression and deception and all kinds of evils runs rampant in this world, we should not be idly standing by. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation to be his ambassadors to those who are perishing, those who are suffering in sin, who are broken in sin. So beloved, I hope that you have been encouraged these past few weeks to have those discussions, have those conversations with your loved ones who who don't know Christ, and to begin those relationships of discipleship in whatever sphere of life you're in. Interestingly enough, this week we'll be continuing on this theme of evangelism, but we'll be examining the, the flip side of the discussion. If the purpose of sharing the gospel is to convince the unbeliever to believe or to have faith in Christ... I think it's important for us to understand why there are unbelievers who remain in their unbelief. Why is it that even after sharing the greatest hope, the the most noble of truths, the good news of Jesus Christ, why is it that some still reject it and remain in their unbelief? Is the gospel not glorious enough? Is it not good enough? Is it not gracious enough? I thought God's grace was irresistible, right? Despite how good the good news is, why do some still remain in unbelief? So our goal for tonight is to unpack the nature of unbelief. Why is it that some people still remain as unbelievers, even after hearing the good news of the gospel? And I think this is a good addition to our discussion on evangelism, because as most of us know, one of the hurdles that we face as ambassadors of Christ of sharing the gospel is the fear of rejection. The fear of sharing the gospel and being rejected or shunned by unbelievers. The fear often causes us to to be reluctant or shrink back and think, well, what's the point? 
What's the point if they're going to uh, reject me anyways? What's the point if they're not going to believe anyways? What's the point of evangelizing to so-and-so if they're not going to repent or, or turn to Christ anyways? Now, tied, tied closely to this fear is the feeling of inadequacy. Did I say enough? Did, did I do enough? Did I say the right thing? If so, if so, then how come they still haven't come to Christ? How come they still haven't believed? So I think by understanding the nature of unbelief, it will give us a better perspective, a better understanding as to why people reject the gospel. Why, why not everyone that we share the gospel to will receive it and believe, despite it being the greatest hope, the best truth, the, the only way to eternal life. By understanding the nature of unbelief, it will free us up from that fear of rejection, of the thought of not having, to, uh, not having said the right thing or not having said enough. My hope, church, is that by understanding how unbelief works, we would be reminded that salvation truly is in the hands of God. And the best thing that we can do is simply preach the gospel, be his ambassadors, his instruments of peace, despite knowing that there will be times where we are rejected and the gospel is not received. And this is what happens in our passage tonight. Let's jump in. Everyone say jump. In verse 43 of our passage, it says, after two days, he departed for Galilee. Remember, this was Jesus' original intention before he made the detour through Samaria in order to have that conversation and in order to meet that Samaritan woman. But then in verse 44, John has a little commentary. He says, for Jesus himself had testified, the prophet has no honor in his own hometown. This statement is repeated in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, and John is using this statement to contrast the, the belief of the Samaritans versus the unbelief of the Galileans. Now you're thinking, what do you mean, Pastor Ian? What unbelief? Jesus hasn't even gone to Galilee yet. And true, and, and in fact, in the next verse, verse 45, it says, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, in fact, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So it sounds like the Galileans were ready to receive Jesus as well. But remember what happened in John chapter 2. Turn with me to John chapter 2, verse 23. John chapter 2, verse 23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Though with their lips they professed in believing in him, Jesus actually knew what was in their hearts. He knew that they didn't truly believe, that their acceptance of him was solely on the basis of him performing these great signs and wonders, these miracles, not on the merit of who he actually was, the Messiah. The Galileans were welcoming his miracles, but not receiving him as Messiah. Now contrast that to what happened in Samaria. No miracles, no extraordinary displays of healing or casting out demons, simply the truth. It says in verse 29, all the Samaritan woman said was, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Listen, that's not a miracle, by the way. right? Not with her reputation as we studied, right? Anyone could have found out what she did. No, what was convincing to the Samaritans, what convinced them uh, to believe was simply Christ's 
words. Verse 41 and 42 of John chapter 4 says, And many more believed because of his word, not signs, not miracles. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Jesus simply preached the gospel, the truth, and and they believed unto salvation. That's how people truly come to faith. By the preaching of God's word. By preaching Christ. It's not by some display of signs and wonders. In fact, Jesus even condemns that kind of belief in the same chapter later on. Verse 48, when this official asked Jesus to heal his son. Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus also says in Matthew, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. This is not to say, of course, that God can't or doesn't use signs and wonders to, 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 to draw attention to the gospel. He can. But the point is, if your faith is in the signs and wonders, in the miracles, but not in the Messiah, then your faith is false. It's not real. It's not genuine. At the very least, it's a shallow faith. And Jesus even addresses this in John chapter 6. A crowd comes out looking for signs. And Jesus says, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. It was the same thing with the Galileans in in our main passage. They saw the signs in Jerusalem. They believed that Jesus could perform miracles, but they didn't believe in him as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. In fact, so much so that in Luke chapter 4, it recalls how after Jesus went to his hometown in Galilee, in Nazareth, he was actually driven out by his own people, almost thrown off a cliff because of the people's unbelief. Yet even in their unbelief, even after knowing of how insincere their faith was in him, Jesus still goes back to Galilee. He brings the gospel to the unbelievers, uh, to his hometown, despite them ever having believed in him, despite them ever, uh, despite knowing that they would reject him still. And the question that we're asking tonight is why? Again, I think this comes with a, this comes with a clear understanding of the nature of unbelief. I believe Jesus understood why why they were stuck in their unbelief, and because he understood it, he still came to Galilee knowing that they would reject him. So what did Jesus know about unbelief that compelled him to still go there despite knowing that they would not believe? Well, the first reality of unbelief that we need to understand is that unbelief is developed in sin. Unbelief is developed in sin. If if you recall the story of the fall of man in the garden, unbelief was actually at the root of man's disobedience to God. God had told Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the good, uh, of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent said, is that what God really said? And it was from that doubt, it was from that disbelief of God's command, of God's word, that Adam and Eve chose to disobey. Unbelief was present at the fall. But after the fall, unbelief became a permanent consequence of our sin nature. In fact, Prior to the regenerating work of God in our hearts, the Bible says that our hearts were hardened towards God. Zechariah chapter 7 verse 11 says, But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. 
They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they would hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts. Uh, the whole Lord of hosts had sent by the Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. See, in our sin nature, it's not just a matter of unbelief. It's complete and utter rebellion, uh, turning away from the truths of God and, and the words of God. In our sin nature, our natural disposition is to suppress the truth of God. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The suppression of the truth, the hardening of our hearts is where unbelief comes from. We are unable to believe in God because by our sin nature, we don't want to believe in God. We don't want a higher authority in our, over our lives other than ourselves. We, we want to be the God of our lives. And as a result, Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, and no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is what we understand as a doctrine of total depravity or radical corruption, according to R.C. Sproul. That is to say that our entire being, our mind, body, soul, even our will, is so radically corrupted by sin that even our righteous deeds, that the best that we could ever do in this life, are as filthy rags to God. And this radical corruption dictates that we willfully choose to suppress the truth of God and that's where unbelief comes from. John even says concerning uh, John even says concerning the coming of uh, of Christ, right? John three nineteen. We read this earlier in our study. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people have loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. When Christ came into the world, the Bible says that he was the goodness and the righteousness of God being revealed to man. Yet, despite all that, because of our sin nature, we still chose the darkness rather than the light. And the reason why the Holy Spirit needs to do the work of regeneration and replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh and why God has to put his spirit in us is because apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we cannot exercise faith in God it's not in our sin nature to do so. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It's like asking a fish to breathe air. First of all, what's air? Second of all, my gills don't function that way. In the same way with our hardened hearts, we could not naturally have faith towards the God of the Bible. The default setting, the factory setting of our hearts was to, was to suppress the truth of God and put faith in ourselves, in idols, in, in the gods of our own making. And sure, we can, we can say that there are people who are looking for answers in the universe, uh, to the universe, right? And people who are looking for the meaning of life and people who are looking for some sort of spirituality. And well, the Bible says that God has put eternity in our hearts. That's why they're looking for something outside of this material world. But apart from God, in our totally depraved state, that search will always lead them to a man-centered religion, a man-centered faith, where, it's, where we are the God of our lives, 
Maybe it's a man-made religion who dictates it. Maybe it's the government. Maybe it's, it's a set of rules or philosophies or ideologies made by man. Apart from the work of God, we will always suppress the truth of God and make ourselves God. Unbelief is developed in sin. Now, this is important for us to remember in this discussion about evangelism and making disciples because we need to get out of our minds this notion that there are people out there seeking for God, looking for God. That there are people who willfully on their own accord are searching for the God of the Bible and we just have to be watchful for whoever comes into our church. Paul literally says no one seeks for God. Plain and simple. The Greek there is no one seeks for God. Jesus also says no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus also says in Matthew chapter 13 verse 14, he says, Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their eyes they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Church, we need to understand and accept this reality of the total depravity of man, because if we don't, then we can become like many churches and many Christians out there who are all about being seeker-sensitive. Those who sugarcoat the gospel and never talk about sin or hell and use worldly tactics to bring in those who are seeking God. But all they end up doing is compromising the gospel, stripping it of its substance just to catch a people that don't exist. And the people who do end up coming to their church believe in this diluted gospel with no substance and become Christians with no roots and Christians with no roots develop no fruit. A shallow gospel produces shallow Christians. We need to remember that no one seeks after the God of the Bible, yet in that truth, we mustn't be discouraged from sharing the gospel anyways. Because what does the Bible say? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's God who is seeking. God who is pursuing. God who is drawing people to himself. Jesus was deeply aware of this. That's why in chapter 2 of John, he, he didn't entrust himself to the belief of those who saw his miracles. Yet in chapter 4, he still goes to Galilee. Not because the people were seeking to believe. But because God in his infinite mercies still sought to bring the gospel to them even if they would reject it. So we don't evangelize on the basis of whoever is seeking after God. Again, it doesn't exist. We evangelize on the basis of whoever God is drawing to himself. Whoever God is pursuing. Whoever God is seeking to save. To dispense his mercy and grace. And of course you can... You can tell who these people are. There, there are people who, after hearing their story, you can point out God's hand in every facet of their story in, in where God has been moving them and directing their lives just so that they can have an encounter with Him. I challenge you, church, to pray for that. Pray for those encounters. Ask God to lead you to people that He's already been working in the hearts of 
Because again, apart from that work, man is lost in their sin. They are suppressing the truth. They willfully choose unbelief. Secondly, when trying to understand the nature of unbelief, we must know that unbelief is the discipline of God. Unbelief is the discipline of God. Bear with me. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We have a whole passage here. It's okay. We only have like three verses in our main passage, so I'm giving you the rest right now. Romans chapter 1. Let's go from verse 18 first. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Go to verse 24 now. Therefore... God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Understand Paul's argumentation here. The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteous men and women, every unbelieving sinner, because in our sin, we suppress the truth of God. In fact, we exchange the truth of God for for the lie, for the idol, for the the worship of the the creation rather than the creator. Again, unbelief is developed in sin. Now, because of our sinful and willful rebellion towards God, it says three times in that passage that God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. Paradeomai in Greek, literally meaning to intentionally hand over. God gives sinners who deny his truth over to, one, the lusts of their hearts, verse 24, two, the dishonorable, dishonorable passions, verse 26, and three, to a debased mind. This is known as the passive wrath of God. God punishing sinners for their unbelief by simply handing them over to their sin. You want to worship the creation? Fine, worship the creation. You want to exchange the truth of God for a lie? Sure, worship the lie. You want to dishonor your bodies? Sure, be lost in the lust of your flesh. That is the passive wrath of God. And unbelief is the discipline of God. This is why we can paradoxically say that sinners choose to go to hell at the same time that God in his sovereignty sends people to hell for their sin. Because on one hand, the fallen, unregenerated man willfully chooses disobedience and the suppression of God's truth. And God being just and holy must punish every ounce of rebellion. Or else he would not be just. He would not be holy. Now, if you push this thought a little further, you may ask, well, how is this just or how is this fair if, as you said, man in his, sin, in his sinful nature is radically corrupt and can only willfully choose to do sin? How is this fair that God should punish sinful man? 
There's a problem with that line of thinking, though. It's the presupposition that what is fair and just to the sinner is to withhold punishment from them. That premise only works if we sinners had anything that merited mercy. Mercy is the withholding of God's wrath, the wrath that we deserve. The reality is we only deserve the wrath of God. We've done nothing, we could do nothing to merit the favor, the mercy, the grace of God. Again, the Bible says even our good works, that the best that we could do is just filthy rags. Filthy rags to a holy, holy, holy God. In our unbelief, that is the denial of the truth, our disobedience to the will and word of God, and our willful rebellion, the only thing that we deserve is God's wrath. We lack any form of defense or, or any appeal of mercy as sinners. The reality is what is fair and what is just is God handing us over to our sin. God's punishment, God's passive wrath, as we mentioned, to the lust of our hearts, everything that we desire in the flesh that is dishonorable, that is sinful, destructive, what is fair is that God hands us over to, the, to dishonorable passions, a love for corrupt and shameful things, and to a debased mind, a foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless way of thinking. All of that is unbelief. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So we have to understand that when we go and share the gospel and are rejected or laughed at or even shunned, our response should not be fear. I'm never going to share the gospel again because they're just going to reject me again. Nor should it be animosity. These, these unbelievers, they, they won't listen to me anyways. Uh, um, forget them. I'm not going to share the gospel. No. That should not be our response when we are rejected by unbelievers. Our response should be compassion. If we know that their unbelief is a result of God hardening their hearts, as a result of God punishing them, our hearts should break for them. Our hearts should desire all the more that they should repent and believe. Our knees should be worn out from begging God to lift the veil of unbelief from their eyes so that they may experience mercy and grace from a God who is willing and able to save them. Our response should be compassion. This was Jesus' heart for the lost. In Luke chapter 19, it recalls when Jesus is going to Jerusalem for the last time before he's betrayed and crucified Luke recalls how Jesus stops to look over the city and weeps. Luke 19, verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. You have to understand that when God punishes sinners, he does so sorrowfully. Jesus wept over Jerusalem's unbelief. 
So you can imagine the sorrow in the Savior's heart, knowing that his own people, his hometown, where he grew up in, his neighbors, his relatives, his childhood friends, would all reject him. Yet he still goes and performs miracles and brings the good news to them out of compassion, as a kindness to those who are perishing in unbelief. And that ought to be the same attitude that we bring to the lost, even if they reject us and turn us away. Sharing the gospel is an act of mercy to those who are perishing in unbelief. Thirdly, we must understand that unbelief is deceptive to man. Unbelief is deceptive to man. Deceptive for both the person in unbelief and for those around them. Again, in our passage, outwardly, the Galileans were welcoming Jesus for his miracles. The miracles that they saw during the Passover in Jerusalem. But inwardly, they rejected him. They rejected any sincere or genuine faith that he was the Messiah. This is why unbelief is so dangerous because it deceives even us into thinking that we are right with God when in reality, we are lost in the lust of our hearts. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, a very frightful passage. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your names? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, unbelief is so deceptive because outwardly, it's easy enough to come to church every week to read your Bible, to pray, to give, to serve, to check off things that we do as Christians. It's easy enough to talk like a Christian. Hello, brother. Hi, sister. God bless you. Praise the Lord. This is the day that the Lord has made. God is good. There's no Christians in the room here? What's going on? I thought this was basic. God is good? And all the time? Such good Christians. It's easy to be outwardly a Christian. But God looks at the heart and the innermost part of the soul. And though we can deceive others, and we can even deceive ourselves, we cannot deceive God. See, unbelief does not always manifest itself as a boisterous rebellion or an enemy of the gospel can simply be a small whisper in the heart of someone who truly doesn't believe. And this is how apostasy happens, by the way. Why there, are, why there are those who profess to be Christians, yet end up falling away, end up leaving the church. Well, John is very clear. 1 John 2.19, he says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Talking about the apostate Christian. The apostle John knew about apostasy all too well. Remember, he traveled and did ministry with Judas Iscariot for three years. And unbeknownst to him and the other disciples, Judas was actually an unbeliever. Judas was actually lost, driven by his own ambitions for gain. Hence why he betrays Jesus for some few pieces of silver. 
This is why we cannot judge a person's salvation simply on the basis of works or even by what they say they believe. This is why the gospel must be preached every time we gather because unbeknownst to us, the person sitting beside us could actually be a lost person, could actually be an unbeliever. Go ahead, look to the person to your left and to your right. Give them a suspicious eye. Be like, are you? You know, they say, you can tell who's saved by whether or not they're wearing a mask, at least according to the government. Unbelief is the reason why we are called to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That is, with a reverence towards God, a holy fear that if we are truly not saved, we will come face to face with the holy wrath of God. We are to work out our salvation, the salvation that we have with fear and trembling. I imagine at this point some of you might be questioning the legitimacy of your own salvation. Some of you might be thinking, well, I have these doubts, Pastor Ian, and these questions about my faith. Does that make me an unbeliever? Or you might be thinking, well, if our unbelief is a result of our sin nature, something that we are born with, and unbelief is the discipline and punishment of God to sinners, and if, if unbelief is so deceptive that we can be fooled ourselves into thinking that we're saved, well, what hope do we have then? What hope can we offer to unbelievers? To answer these concerns, let's look at the last characteristic of unbelief that we'll discuss tonight as we close. And listen, this one's a good one. Unbelief is defeated in Christ. Unbelief is defeated in Christ. The reality is the only reason why we can have faith in the one true God in the first place is because faith is a gift, an act of mercy and grace from a loving and holy God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, or chapter 2, verse 1 to 9. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul's saying that even us who are sitting in this church, we are all like the rest of the world, totally depraved, lost in sin, suppressing the truth of God. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. 
Our only hope, our only anchor, the thing that ties us down to our salvation is faith in Christ Jesus, that Christ has made a way so that we can receive the gift of God, the gift of faith. And it is in that faith we can hope and rely on the mercies of God to save us, not because of anything that we have done, not because of anything that we have said or anything that we could ever do or say, but solely on the merit of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's what Paul is getting at here. God being rich in his mercies because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were suppressing his truth, even when we were rebelling against his word, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Listen, that's what we're called to believe in. This is discussion about belief and unbelief. This is what we're called to believe in. That it is only by God's grace and mercy that, he's, that He has opened our hearts, replaced our hearts of stone with a heart of flesh so that we might sincerely have faith in Jesus Christ. It is the confession that on our own we cannot do anything to save ourselves or even keep ourselves saved. That our salvation is wholly dependent on the mercy and grace of God that we receive through Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're a Christian and you have doubts or fears about your own salvation, that's okay. I think it's good to have those fears. To have those doubts, to question, God, am I really saved? Because that that shows a deep desire to be saved, to genuinely be under the, the mercies and grace of God. To recognize that if we're not saved, we're going to face the wrath of God. So it's good to have doubts, to wrestle with your salvation in fear and trembling. Everyone has unbelief, even believers. But what separates a Christian and someone who is truly lost is where we turn to in order to reconcile those unbeliefs. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, it recalls the story of a man who came to Christ asking that his child would be healed. And he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus actually rebukes him because if, what do you mean if? Jesus says, if you can, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And in his desperation, in faith, in his desire to see his child healed, his father says in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out with tears and said, I believe Help my unbelief. That's the desperation that we are to have in our struggle with unbelief, in our struggle with doubts and fears. It is a longing and a knowing that only Christ could truly reconcile our doubts and fears and our questions in this life. It is a desire to come to Christ despite having those doubts, having those fears. It is a willingness to throw ourselves to the mercies of the Savior despite not understanding Him completely, despite not knowing all of the facts. That's faith. That's what faith is. It's a confession of the heart that says, God, I don't know everything. 
don't have all the answers. I can't save myself. So I'm throwing myself to your mercies. That's what we're called to believe. If you're experiencing unbelief in your life tonight, the invitation is to do exactly as this father did. I believe, but help my unbelief, Lord. There's an area in your life where you feel like you're lacking faith in or you're losing hope in. There's an area in your life where you're doubting the power of God to work in. Let this be your prayer tonight. Lord, I believe, I know that you're good and that your plans and purpose for me are better than my own plans and purposes. That your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Lord, I know that you are merciful and I know that you are gracious. I know that you are able. I know that you're, 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 you're mighty to save. I know that you are powerful to open this door. I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. That's the invitation. In desperation, come to God with your unbelief. God can work through your unbelief. So the invitation stands to wrestle with our doubts and fears, bring them to Christ, reconcile them in the truth of Jesus Christ and who he is. And for those who have yet to put their faith in Jesus, that's the invitation. That's what we've been preaching. That God is holy. You're a sinner. You can't save yourself. The only person that can save you is Jesus Christ. He's done the work at the cross, in the grave, in his resurrection. And all you have to do is put your faith in him. That's the loving grace, the mercies of a holy God. Church, as we close tonight, the as we've unpacked the, the nature of unbelief, remember that when we are sharing the gospel, we must approach the unbeliever with love and compassion, bringing the mercies of God, the truth of God, to a perishing world. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, God, we are reminded, O oh Lord, of how undeserving we are of your grace and your mercies. We are reminded, O oh Lord, how at one point in our lives we were dead in the trespasses of our sins, lost in the ways of the world, futile in our thinking, lost in unbelief, hardened of heart, rebellious towards you, suppressing your truth, yet in your infinite love and mercy, you decided to take our hearts of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. In your infinite love and mercy, God... Thanks for listening. 
We hope that you are blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.